We'll be in Genesis 26 this morning. Genesis 26, as we continue to make our way through this wonderful book, barely over halfway, a long way to go. We have a wonderful story today. We have 35 verses in chapter 26. I hope you brought your lunch. We won't go through all those and read them initially, but we will go through the whole chapter, and I think it fits well together as one big story about Isaac. So what I want to do is I'll read the first five verses, and then we'll walk through the story together during the sermon. So let's read Genesis 26, 1 through 5. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. Now there was famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice. And kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we come before you today hungry for the truth. Hungry once again for hope and for peace. And we recognize, Lord, most of all, we're hungry for you. Because, Lord, we know you will draw near to the brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit, that you will encamp around your covenant people to protect us and deliver us in times of trouble so that we will lack no good thing. So Lord, as we pray, we ask that you would keep these promises to your people this morning. Help us, Father, to taste and see that you are good, especially in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, if you're a fan of Westerns, I hope you are, then you probably know that most Westerns pretty much have the same basic storyline. You have your good guys and your bad guys. They're really easy to tell apart because the good guys wear white hats. The bad guys wear black hats, right? And there's always some fight, some conflict, and it's usually over some important piece of land. Right, you have a town or a business or a gold mine, but usually it seems to be this kind of family farm, doesn't it? This safe place for the family to grow up and this farm that's supposed to be passed down for generations. Now every Western has different kinds of threats, but they come from two places. They're either coming from the threats outside the family fire and flood or whatever, or even wicked men, businessmen who want to take the land or robbers that come in and steal. But sometimes the threats in the Western come from within the family themselves, from Pa or whatever you want to call him, right? Having a bad drinking problem or gambling problem, and he puts the whole family at risk and all the property at risk as well. 
Now, hopefully that even sounds familiar if you hate Westerns, if you've never seen a Western, because the book of Genesis unfolds for us a lot like a Western in many cases, especially here in chapter 26, because God identifies the good guys and the bad guys right up front. He puts them in genealogies. This is the seed of the woman. This is the seed of the serpent. They don't wear white hats and black hats, but God identifies them for us in the chapter before. And the fight that they have is not over the family farm, but it's over the promises of God. This birthright, which is coming up over and over again, which is really the blessings of Abraham. And we know those promises are threatened from the outside by wicked Philistines in this chapter and by famine in the land, but they're also threatened on the inside in this chapter by Isaac's foolishness and by his sin. You see, the biggest difference between Westerns and these biblical historical accounts of the patriarch is that in Westerns, the hero doesn't always win. Sometimes the farm is lost. Sometimes the property is destroyed and people die. There's tragedy in the end. But in these biblical accounts, the hero, which is not Isaac and Abraham, by the way, which is God Almighty, never loses. Even when his people are unfaithful, even when the, the, all the odds are stacked against God and it looks like he'll never keep his promises, he always comes through. Which teaches us, by the way, that his promises are never truly at risk. Because this is the sovereign God of the universe we're talking about. And he never, never fails to keep his word. Not even once. And we've seen that, haven't we? Already in Abraham's life, and we'll see it now today in Isaac's life. In fact, as you read this story, I'm sure that you'll feel this kind of deja vu feeling. You'll feel like, I've read this before. I've seen this before. Because we see the same trials and the same failures and even the same blessings that we saw in Abraham's life now in Isaac's life. You're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. Isaac had a completely different life. I'm sure he had other experiences that Moses could have shared. So why would Moses share the same events? Why would he choose these to retell the story of Abraham for Isaac? It's pretty simple. It's, he's pretty much teaching us like father, like son. In that God's faithfulness will continue from generation to generation. Even when the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Even when Isaac doesn't learn from the sins of his father. And even when we don't learn from the sins of our spiritual fathers, God is still faithful. God is still good. In fact, there's one real simple promise that runs throughout this whole story. It's central not just to this story, but to the whole Bible because we still cling to it today. And it comes really from Isaiah 41.10 and this story, and it's this. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. That's God's promise to Isaac. But he also gave that promise to Abraham, so we could even add, fear not, for I am with you like I was with your father, Abraham. That's what we see happening in this story. Now, as we go through this story, I want to draw your attention to four sections in this chapter, four really scenes in this chapter that show us how God is with us in our lives, just like he was with Isaac. And so first, in the section we read already, verses 1 through 5, we see the promise. I'm with you, and I will bless you, he tells Isaac. Second, we'll see the protection of God. Verses 6 through 11, which is really a protection from Isaac, from the threats within and his foolishness. 
Third, we'll see provision from God, which is verses 12 through 25, and that's when the threats come from the outside, from famine and these Philistines. And then finally, we'll see God's peace in the land, which really is a foreshadowing of the ultimate peace we have in Christ. So there you are, the four points, promise, protection, provision, and peace. All peace, just for you. So there you go. Let's look at promise, verse 1. Moses says, now there was a famine in the land. Now if you've been with us in Genesis already, I hope you're clued in that, wait a minute, that happened to Abraham as well. In fact, it happened to Abraham right after he received the promises from God in Genesis 12. And do you remember what Abraham did? He ran off to Egypt, and he got in trouble with that whole sister fib thing with Sarah, and it created a big mess. And so now Moses wants us to make the connection there between this famine and the old one. Look at what he says next. Besides the former famine, that was in the days of Abraham. So Moses is saying, new famine here, but same test. That's his point. New famine, but same test now for Isaac. And Isaac has a huge advantage, by the way. He has seen God provide for him and his family in tremendous ways, hasn't he? Provide the ram on Mount Moriah so that he wouldn't die. Provide for his father in the land. Provide even for his own wife, Rebecca, when he stayed in the land. And so the question now is, will he trust the Lord to provide again? Or will he run off to Egypt like his father did? Look at the end of verse 1. And Isaac went to Gerar. To Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now you're probably thinking, well, it's not Egypt. But if your Bible geography is a bit rusty there, he's headed south. And Gerar is right on the way to Egypt. So we see Isaac running out of the promised land. Really, he gets to the edge of the promised land, to the city of Gerar, and that's where he stops. So like father, like son, Isaac's running away. He's taking matters into his own hands once again trying to protect his family because he's not trusting the Lord. And he's leaving the land that Abraham fought so hard to keep him in, putting the promise of the land at risk. And look what happens, verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him, first time, he spoke to Isaac, and said, do not go down to Egypt. If we ever had any doubts that he was headed to Egypt, God stops him here. Don't go down to Egypt like your father. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, the promised land. And I will be with you. And I will bless you. There's the promise. The central promise of this whole story. The central promise of the Bible. God saying, I will be with you here, Isaac. And bless you. I'll take care of your needs in the promised land. But then the amazing thing is God doesn't stop there. He continues to elaborate. Verse 3. Well, the middle of verse 3. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. I hope you're already recognizing we've heard this before, haven't we? That's going to happen a lot today. We've heard that in Abraham's story a number of times. Every time the promise is repeated. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. That's what God says. And then he says, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. We've seen that before too, haven't we? Genesis 15, when God brings Abraham outside and says, count the stars, so shall your offspring be. And now he extends that promise to Isaac. 
and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12 again, and even Genesis 22, God repeats that promise. Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Here's the interesting part about that. When did Abraham do that? Well, that's a quote from Genesis 22, a story that Isaac is very familiar with, when he almost lost his life because his father was sacrificing him on Mount Moriah. And God provided for Isaac and his father on that mountain. They even named that place, the Lord will provide. And God is reminding Isaac of that wonderful moment once again. See, what blows me away about these verses and these promises is that most of them are unnecessary. You realize that most of these promises didn't need to be said. Isaac already knew them. God could have stopped at verse 3 and said, sojourn in the land. I will be with you. I will bless you. Period. That's all Isaac needs to know. But again, God goes back to the land, the seed, the blessing promises once again. Why? Well, because God is pushing Isaac back to these promises so that he can look beyond them to their fulfillment. Remember, Abraham looked beyond these promises as well. We learn in Hebrews 11, verse 10, he sojourned in the land. Why? Because he was looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. So now God is presenting these promises once again to Isaac and basically saying, look through the promises, Isaac. Look all the way to their fulfillment, to Christ. Look with the eyes of faith. St. Isaac, you don't understand this now, but the promised land is so important because it's a pledge to you of everything I promise. And Isaac, if you don't trust for me to provide for you during a famine in the promised land, how are you going to trust me to bring the final seed for you, the Messiah, the one to save you and the whole world? How will you trust me to bless you eternally in the fulfillment of the promised land in heaven if you won't trust me now, Isaac? In other words, God's saying, Isaac, trust me now in this small physical provision so that you can trust me in the greater spiritual provision in Christ. That's what God's doing here with these promises. And so what does Isaac do? Oh, he trusts the Lord. Kind of. See that in the next verse. So we've seen the promise scene. Let's look now to the second scene, which is protection. Look at verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now we read that short verse and we should think, yay, Isaac. He listened. He didn't go to Egypt. He's living by faith and not by sight. He's trusting in the Lord. In some ways he's being more faithful than his father Abraham who did go on to Egypt and got himself in a big mess. So we should cheer and say, yes, Isaac. And then we read the next verse, verse 7. When the man of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Uh-oh. Seen that before, haven't we? That sister fib is exactly what Abraham, his father, did. In fact, Abraham did it twice, didn't he? He did it first in Genesis 12, which was in Egypt, which is what God stopped Isaac from doing, and, and Sarah ended up in Pharaoh's harem. It's a terrible situation, but God protected her. And then he did it again in Genesis 20, but do you remember where? In Gerar, the same town. 
that Isaac's in now. And he did it to a man named Abimelech. And who is Isaac lying to? This man named Abimelech. Now you're probably thinking, gosh, this poor guy. He just keeps getting lied to and believing these falsehoods by this same family. Well, the odds are this is probably not the same Abimelech. Abimelech is most likely a title. It just means my father is king, Avimelech in Hebrew. That's the idea. So it's probably a title like Pharaoh. And there were lots of Pharaohs. There were probably lots of Abimelechs. So this could be the son or the grandson of Abraham's Abimelech because that was a long time ago. But even though that's the case, Isaac still lied, didn't he? A lot like his father. In fact, in some ways, Isaac's lie is a little worse. At least Abraham could have said, well, she's kind of my sister, half-sister after all. But at most for Isaac, Rebekah is this distant cousin, not even close to a sister at all. And what just blows me away is, why would Isaac do this? He just trusted the Lord, right? He wasn't afraid of famine in the land. So what's he afraid of now? Well, verse 7, right in the middle of verse 7. He said, she is my sister. And then he said, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So what's Isaac afraid of? He's afraid of these wicked men. He's afraid of this pagan, godless king, which I'm sure there's a reputation there because already Abraham has heard about the sin of all the Philistines and all the people around him in Canaan. And so Isaac knows how wicked this man could be. And so what does he do? He puts his wife at risk to save his own skin. He puts the promises of God at risk, the seed promise of God, because he's supposed to have a child with Rebekah. And by the way, I don't think that Jacob and Esau are born yet at this point. I know it sounds weird. We just heard about them in the last chapter. But the Bible often will mix up the chronology to make a point. And I think it would be really hard to pull off the whole sister fib with Jacob and Esau standing right there. Who are those kids? No, he's still lying, isn't he? He's putting the promises of God at risk right after he trusted God to provide. His fear of man kicked in, and he wouldn't trust God to protect him, to protect him or his wife. So his fears here are overshadowing his faith. I think we need to pause here for a second and reflect on this, because there are a number of lessons we can learn from Isaac's actions here. First of all, I want to address the kids. Kids, learn from your parents' mistakes. Don't just learn from their victories, the things they do right. Learn from their mistakes. Don't pridefully assume that you won't fall into the same sins. Don't say to yourself, you know what, I won't treat my kids this way. I won't treat my husband or wife this way. I won't fall into the same sin as they have. I won't be as worldly and as ungodly as them and fall into all these lusts and lies. Why? Because I'm better. You might not say that. But in your heart, you might believe that. And look, I'm not saying that you have to follow them into their sins. It's not inevitable. But just because you don't have to follow them into their sins, it doesn't mean that you're better. The same wicked heart dwells in you, as does them, and as as all of us. So don't look down on them for their sins. Don't puff yourself up. And don't blame them for your sins, by the way. Act like the victim and say, well, I I don't know any better. This is what I was taught. This is how I was raised. Learn. 
learn from their mistakes, learn from their sins, and trust and obey the Lord. Kids, I'm sure your parents want more than anything else. I've heard them pray this way, that that they could pass on the faith and holiness to you that they wish they had. Their hope and prayer often is that you would love Jesus more than they do. And you would obey him even better than they did. So learn to do that in their mistakes and in their victories. And adults, we can learn from Isaac as well, can't we? I think we can learn in one way to be careful after a spiritual high. This is an incredible moment of faith for Isaac. He hears the Lord speak. He obeys the promises and stays in the land, puts himself in this very tough place, but then immediately he falls into sin. He doubts those same promises. I hope you can all see yourself in that. How often our great moments of faith are followed by failures, aren't they? We can be here and be so convicted by the word, so determined to change, and walk out those doors and nothing will change. We need to learn from Isaac. Learn from Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's just like I told the kids to not look down on you, don't look down on Isaac. Don't assume you're any better, that you're not vulnerable from sin. That past faithfulness just automatically guarantees that you'll be faithful in the future. No. Trust the Lord. Trust in these promises. In moments of victory and moments of defeat. Because God will be with you. And he will protect you. As we see here in verse 8. Look at verse 8 here. It says, when he, that's Isaac, had been there, that's Gerar, where the Philistines are, a long time. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? Now, it's really funny to see what the different translations do with this verse. (laughs) It's admittedly a hard verse to translate because you guys remember what what Isaac's name means. It means laughter, doesn't it? So if you want to be really literal, this could mean laughter is laughing with his wife. Or Isaac is Isaacing with his wife. That's what it literally says. And Abimelech clearly knows something that's going on here more than laughing because he knows you don't do that with your sister. That's not what happens. You aren't brother and sister. So we don't know exactly what goes on, but we do know it's maybe not rated G. It's maybe more than that. And so the translations say caressing and flirting or playing or my favorite King James says sporting with his wife. I'm not sure how they got that, but there you go, laughing with his wife. But see, the bottom line, still the important part here is that God sovereignly revealed to this king that Isaac lied. God sovereignly exposes Isaac's lie to protect him and his wife. Look at verse 10. Look what Abimelech does. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. You probably recognize that language, don't you? God said that about the tree of life. Rebecca is portrayed here as the forbidden fruit. That's what this king is saying here. 
Now this moment has to be incredibly embarrassing for Isaac. This godless pagan king who Isaac was afraid of because of his wickedness turns out to be more righteous and more gracious than Isaac was. He rebukes Isaac for this foolish lie and for putting his wife at risk. He even protects Rebekah better than her husband by making this law that doesn't let anybody touch her. And he even unwittingly here protects the promises of God because he protects their marriage. And remember the promises that the seed of the woman will come through Isaac and Rebekah. So we see the work of God here. This is God stepping in sovereignly to accomplish his will. This is God graciously providing and protecting for his people despite their sinfulness, despite their foolishness, to make sure that his promises will never fail. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's such a blessing to know that this is how our God loves us. This is how our God protects us, even from ourselves. When we sin, he doesn't just throw it in our face. Say, how could you? How dare you? Didn't you hear what I said? You've known better. He doesn't just turn us over to our sin completely and fully and say, all right, you just, you made your bed, now lie in it. This is what you deserve. Our God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As David says in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And listen, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Our God treats us better than we deserve. Because he loves us and because Christ has saved us. He's working all things for our good, even our failures, even our sins. Why? To glorify himself, to discipline us, to bring us back to him for repentance and faith. Remember, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And that's what we see in Isaac here. You see that in the next scene. So we've seen the promise and the protection. Let's look now at the provision in verse 12 of God. Provision of God in verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now don't forget, same year means the famine's still going on. Isaac reaps this massive crop. And remember, he's not a farmer. He comes from a family of shepherds and sojourners. When they run out of food, they just move to another place. They don't settle in and plant crops. This is unusual for Isaac. And then the first time he plants these crops, massive harvest. Has he just discovered this hidden talent? He's just this amazing farmer. No. Look at the end of verse 12. The Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him even after what he just did. The Lord provides for him. The Lord is keeping his promise that we heard in verse 3. Sojourn in this land. And I will be with you. And I will bless you. God is keeping his word even to his unfaithful servant, just like he did to Abraham. If you remember, in Abraham's unfaithfulness, he came back to the land and he was blessed by God even after his failures in Egypt. And we see God doing the same thing here for Isaac in Gerar. And look at verse 13. 
And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. The blessing and the provision of God actually starts another test. It actually created conflict with the people around him. Verse 15, now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. That is just a wicked, wicked thing to do. Think about this. They're destroying something that's useful. Filling in these wells. I mean, what if your people needed the water? Filling in these wells in a dry, desert-like place is, is a taunt. It's an act of war. It's provoking this family, trying to push them away. And that's exactly what we see happen. Verse 16. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now amazingly here, this is a provoke really to war. He's pushing them out. But Isaac, as we see, meek and mild Isaac, always, it seems, walks away from a fight. And this time when he walks away, he trusts this as God's providential hand. He doesn't go to war as he could. He could overpower this king, but he doesn't. He walks away and trusts that God will provide. Look at verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. This is a really funny scene to me in a lot of ways. The Philistines come with this big threat. They plug up the wells and they say, get out of here. This is our land and our water. So Isaac says, okay, and where does he go? To the suburbs. <laughs> he moves to the edge of town. The valley of Gerar is not very far. He did not go home. He just went out of sight. And he basically redigs and renames those wells. Why? Because when he's naming something, he's claiming ownership. He's beginning to believe the promises that this is his land. The land that God gave to him. Not the Philistines' land. I mean, this would be crazy in the sense it would be like if I was at your house. You're saying, you overstayed your welcome. You need to get out of here. I say, okay. And then I go and take my car and I park it in your driveway. And I put up a sign that says, this is Russell's place. And I look at the house and say, I don't really like this paint color. I'm going to paint the house. You come outside. What are you doing? I'm painting my house. No, you're not. This is my house. It's my house, right? You see the fight here. Isaac seems to walk away, but he doesn't really walk away. And so there's contention in the land, conflict in the land, so much so that then the wells he redigs, he actually renames. He calls one of them in verse 20, contention, Essek. And he calls another one in 21, accusation, sitna, the word we get Satan from, right? Accuser. But each time Isaac moves, each time the Philistines push him onward, he's getting further and further in the land. Closer and closer, by the way, to where his father lived. That's no mistake. This is God's sovereign hand leading him through these conflicts right where he needs to be. Look at verse 22. And he moved from there, these wells that he dug, and there was contention, and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. Finally. 
So he called its name Rehoboth, meaning kind of broad land, open space, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. There's the promise of the Lord. Isaac is believing these promises, even during the famine, even when his enemies are assaulting him and won't give him rest. Isaac trusts the Lord to provide. He's saying, Lord, these conflicts are terrible, but you're guiding us every step of the way. This is your hand at work. You've given us this place where we can spread out. We have more food and water than we know what to do with. And it's a famine. Clearly this is your hand. And since you have provided for us in this way, I know you'll provide enough for us to be fruitful and multiply. I know you will keep your other words, even to bless the nations. So how does Isaac respond to this incredible provision in these terrible times? He worships the Lord. Look at verse 23. From there, he went up to Beersheba. I hope you recognize that name. That name comes up over and over again in Abraham's journeys because that's his home, really. He went all over the promised land, but he spent most of his life in Beersheba. Now Isaac returns to that place. Verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Same promise he had from the beginning. God is reaffirming the covenant. He's renewing the covenant. He's telling Isaac, yes, I know you've been unfaithful, but I won't be unfaithful to you. I know you've blown it, Isaac, but I'm still with you. I'm still blessing you, not because you earned it, clearly, but because I'm gracious and because I'm keeping a promise I made to your father. And so Isaac builds an altar, 25. He builds an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped. And he pitched his tent there just like his father. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. The Lord's going to continue to provide. Let's dig another well. I hope you can see this pattern. Like father, like son. Yes, in his failures. But also in his repentance. In his worship. This is exactly what Abraham did after he failed in Egypt. He returned to the Lord. Genesis 13.3 says, After this Egypt failure, he journeyed as far as Bethel to the place where he had made an altar at first, the place where God made the promises to him. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is what repentance looks like. God graciously provides for us. He even protects us from ourselves. And when our sin is exposed, we need to return to the Lord like this. Recognize his grace and mercy and repent and trust and obey. This is a pattern that we are called to all through the Bible and we're being shown how it looks right here. And look what God does to follow this up. Even more blessing. We've seen the promise, protection, provision. Let's look last, 26, at the peace that God brings in the land. Verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? 
I feel like that's a fair question, right? I thought you hate me. You've thrown me out of your land. Why are you here to fight? But listen to what this king says. It's incredible. Verse 28. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Those are the words of the Lord out of the mouth of this pagan Gentile king. The king who Isaac feared. That's what God has been teaching Isaac this whole time. What he appeared to him and said, he now hears from the mouth of his enemies. And don't miss the incredible progression of that promise through this whole chapter. Verse 3, we see what? God says, I will be with you. Future tense. In the middle of famine. I will be with you and I will bless you. Verse 24, right after the failure, what does God say? I am present tense, with you. I know you failed, but I'm still here, Isaac, with you, and will bless you. And now in verse 28, what does the pagan see? What does the whole world see? Clearly, plainly, God has been, past tense, with you this whole time. God promises, reaffirms, even acknowledges one more time for Isaac, as if to say, are you getting the point, Isaac? (laughs) Did you get it the first two times? Because here it is once again, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for better or worse. And in your case, this time, it's the worst. But I'm here. I'm not walking away from you. I will not wipe my hands, even of my unfaithful bride. Look what happens in verse 28. In the middle of verse 28. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between Isaac and this nation, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. There it is again. So he made them a feast. And they ate and drank. They're celebrating the covenant meal together. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, part of the covenant as well. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. Do you see what God did? This king who Isaac was afraid of, God put the fear of Isaac, this meek and mild shepherd and farmer, in the heart of that pagan king so that he would come to him for this covenant. God has made peace in the land. Why? So that Isaac can dwell in the promised land as God intended. No doubt this is a partial fulfillment even of another promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great among the nations so that you will be a blessing. That's what we see happening here. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. This is what God did. He's fulfilling that word. But listen to the last part of that verse. Part that we heard in the beginning of the chapter. And in you, Isaac, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now we've seen so many incredible promises fulfilled. When does that one get fulfilled? That's the work of the seed of Abraham, isn't it? And Isaac has received all these incredible blessings. Peace in the land and provision and protection. When do we see them be a blessing to the whole world? Well, we find out that that battle is for a different seed, a greater seed than Isaac. We see the war rages on. Look at verse 34. When Esau, well now Esau appears, that's Isaac's son, 
When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife. That's a Canaanite woman. That's what Abraham fought so hard against for Isaac not to have a Canaanite wife. But he didn't just take one Canaanite wife. He took another. And Basemuth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, two Canaanite wives. Esau clearly has, wants nothing to do with this birthright. Wants nothing to do with the promises of God. He's not walking in faith and repentance like Isaac. And what happens? And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. See, this shows us that even though Isaac is the seed of Abraham and all these incredible promises are fulfilled, the war, the enmity between these seeds continues because we're waiting a fulfillment of a greater seed, a seed that would come and not just be close to God. God wouldn't just draw near to this seed, but God would draw near in this seed. He would come as God, Emmanuel, to keep all the promises of seed and land and blessing. He would not just be the one that provides for his people. He would be the provision itself. As he would lay down his life for us, living perfectly in our place and dying on the cross, taking all the wrath that we deserve to free us from the bondage of sin. And he would raise from the dead so that those who trust in him might be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit who is now at work in us, in our victories and in our failures, to sanctify us to make us more like God, to make us more like this seed, this Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, the goal of salvation isn't just to be freed from your sins. That's not the primary goal. It's a wonderful gift of God. The goal is to be freed so that we dwell with God. This promise that God is with us is where it's all headed. That's what we lost in the garden. That's what Isaac desperately wants, and he gets a taste of it here. And it's what we get a taste of. When Jesus comes as our Emmanuel, he comes, lives and dies for us. And after he raises from the dead, do you remember what he tells his disciples after telling them to make disciples to the ends of the earth? Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. Christ is with us. Christ is the fulfillment of these promises. And we see in the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, this glorious picture of where all of history is headed. The final and ultimate fulfillment of this promise because Christ has given us so much, but he's continuing to save us. And one day, Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. This is our future if we're trusting in Christ. We don't have to be afraid of anything. All the threats and terrible things in the world, all the ugly sin that comes out of our own heart, God will provide. God will protect. He has already provided his son. He promises he will provide all things in him. So trust him. He is with us. He is for us. And he will be that way forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful blessing to see your sovereign and gracious hand at work 
in the life of Isaac. I pray, Lord, that you would help us now to not merely be hearers of your word, but doers of your word, that we would respond in repentance and faith that when the trials and difficulties of this world come, that we would return to you and run to you, looking through your promises to our only hope in Christ and trust that Christ's finished work is enough. I pray, Father, you would give us grateful hearts that help us to respond by walking in faith and obedience like Abraham, like Isaac, and like your people do throughout all of Scripture. God, we know this will never happen without your gracious work in our hearts, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. So, Lord, we pray, keep your promises. Cause us to obey and trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.